Father, this is your word. You caused it to be written. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Our text is the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. And while you're finding that, um, what can I say? You do me such an honor. Um, you've obviously worked on, on that tune. You've added parts that I have not heard before. You, that was all Bill's Oh, Bill Wyman. Well, Bill Wyman, if you're watching, thank you. Uh, you do me such an honor. Now, John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So far, God's holy, inerrant Word, may He add His blessing to the reading of it. I'm trying to remember, the older I get, the more difficult that is. Um, somewhere around 1975, I'm going to shoot for 1975, so almost 50 years ago, I was asked by uh, a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist preacher um, who was in Liverpool, England, if I would come and preach for him. Uh, this was a tremendous honor. Uh, I, I knew him by his uh, extraordinary reputation. Some of you have read some books maybe by Stuart Olliott. Uh, he writes in a very accessible way, and uh, uh, he's, he's one of my top ten preachers of all time. And my text was John 1.14. And it seems uh, providential and um, cyclical. Uh, that after 50 years I should return, I've, I've preached on it many times, but uh, that I should return to one of the first sermons uh, that I ever preached. John writes his gospel uh, somewhere in the 90s. It's very late. Uh, he lived to the mid-late 90s uh, before, he, before he finally died. And his gospel is maybe as much as um, 40 or 50 years after Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is in the early 40s, and Luke and Matthew are in the 50s, uh, and then you jump all the way to the ninth, possibly to the 90s. We're not absolutely sure, but um, my point is to say this, that John knew of the existence of Mark and Luke and Matthew, and particularly Luke and Matthew, the two Gospels that record the nativity story, the, the birth story, the Bethlehem story. So, John knows that the church already has the story about how Jesus was born. So, John begins somewhere else. Theologians talk about Christology from below and Christology from above. From below, the nativity stories, the shepherds, the angels, the stable, the 
census, all of that. But John begins in heaven. John begins by recalling the book of Genesis. In the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And it begins exactly the same way as the Greek translation of Genesis 1. So John is taking you back to the very beginning. And what he says is that in the beginning, the Word already was, and the Word was God. He also mentions in verse 5 of chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that too reminds you of Genesis 1. What was the first creating act? Let there be light. Let there be light. It's as though John had been reading the first chapter of Genesis in his devotions when he thought about beginning his gospel. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light that will destroy the darkness. The darkness does not comprehend it. In 2023, you can see that the darkness does not comprehend the light that is Jesus, the light that is the gospel. And then we come to our text in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I want to say three things. First of all, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The eternal creating Word becomes flesh. Now, John calls Him the Word, the Logos. Now, Logos can mean several things. It has a fairly wide semantic range, Logos. Uh, we know it from ology. Anything with an ology in it, it comes from logos. And usually, when you have a word with ology in it, it has a scientific meaning, an explanation of how things are, an explanation of why things are. But word can also mean something else. I can't read your mind. Sometimes I can read my wife's mind. But I can't read your minds. And um, sometimes you, you, you think just by a gesture or a facial expression that you can read what somebody's thinking, but you, you can always be surprised. In order for me to know what it is that you're thinking, you have to verbalize it. You have to speak. You have to, you have to use a logos, a word. Jesus makes God revealed. He shows us who God is. He shows us what God is like, that God is like Jesus in every possible way, and there is no un-Jesus likeness in God. That's a very deep thought that you can take home and meditate for the rest of the day. The Word that was God was made flesh. Now, the church, the early church, pondered how to express this truth theologically. 
that you have these two truths. One is that Jesus is God, and the other is that Jesus is man. And the first item that the church wanted to secure because of all kinds of opposition was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 when bishops met together to declare the full absolute deity of Jesus. Very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. That's the bedrock of Christianity. There can be no compromise. There can be no yielding. There can be no fudging of the absolute total deity of Jesus. He is God. And he became flesh. He became something that he wasn't before. John's way of talking about the incarnation is not the story of Bethlehem, but John is thinking theologically, and I know that this congregation can think theologically, and it's important that you do. He became flesh. He became a human being, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He was in the form of God, and he took the form of a servant. Both are true at the same time. And again, the church pondered this deeply into the fifth century to 451 in Chalcedon, and bishops met together, and they, they, they talked about how the two natures of Jesus, the divine nature and the human nature, how, how they relate to one another in one person. There is only one Jesus. There's, a, there's only one Him. There's only one He, but He's both God and man, fully man, human anatomy, human physiology, a human nervous system. His cardiovascular system was human. His sense of touch and taste and feeling and smelling were all human. I'm missing with the fifth sense. Human affections. We read of Jesus crying at the funeral of Lazarus, his friend. We see him in a boat in the midst of a storm, and he's, he's fast asleep. He's so tired. A human mind, he had to learn to read and verbalize and talk and make sentences. A human psychology. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men, Luke says. He was both fully God and fully man, the last Adam, the second man, and he dwelt among us. Now, this word dwelt, uh, skeno in Greek, um, it's the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for tabernacle. 
And you all know, of course, what the tabernacle represented. The tabernacle represented the presence of God. This, this fully incarnate, this fully human child lying in a manger in Bethlehem was none other than the very presence of God. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. So the Word became flesh. Secondly, He put His glory on display. What is Christmas about? It's about putting God's glory on display. We can get very sentimental at Christmas time and, and, and Christmas cards and so on and presents and family and turkey, or you don't need turkey at Christmas, but, 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 uh, but beef or whatever it is that you… and it's, you can get all very sentimental about it and forget the very meaning and essence of Christmas, which is putting God's glory on display. Now, in the background is Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Those are phenomenally important chapters in um, the narrative of the Old Testament. Genesis 32, 33, and 34. In Genesis 32, Moses comes down from the mountain with the um, tablets, the two tablets of the law, and what did he find? Idolatry. And his brother Aaron saying that they threw all of this gold into the fire, and what came out? A golden calf. It just came out. It just happened. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And in chapter 33, you have the tent of meeting. The tabernacle is in the future. And it's some distance away from the camp where he goes to seek, Moses goes to seek the face of God. Who will go with me? Moses asks. Everyone seems to have let him down. Who will go with me? My presence will go with you, was the answer. My presence will go with you. And then Moses asks that question, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And he wasn't allowed to see the glory of God. He had to hide, you remember, in the cleft of the rock. And as the glory of God passed by, all he could see was he could peep out at the end and see the entail. Exodus 34, 5, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the background to John 1, 14. We have seen His glory. You need to understand the phenomenal thing that John is saying here, because John is saying, you and I have seen far more than Moses saw. Moses saw just a little twinkling light. That's all he saw. And we have seen the full thing put on display. In Jesus, in Christ, the glory of God all of His 
essence is put on public display for us to behold. What a blessing. What a phenomenal blessing that is, that we have seen something that Moses could not see. The law came by Moses. John is is making a relative contrast, but he's making it in absolute terms. The law came by Moses, light and truth, grace and truth, came by Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that there wasn't grace in Moses, and he's certainly not saying that there's no law in Christ. But relatively speaking, what does Jesus put on public display? What does that glory manifest? And that's my third point, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Christmas is about grace and truth. That you can believe this story. You can believe Jesus. You can believe every word that He says because it's absolutely true. In our postmodern world where nothing is true, where there are no absolutes, John slices into that narrative and says, there's truth in Jesus Christ. You can believe Him, every single word that He says. May you as a congregation go on and on and on believing that and stand counter-culturally to the world outside. And hold on to that truth with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. But there's also grace. Spurgeon's favorite hymn, Grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with the echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. Do you see what he says in verse 12? If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christmas brings out folk that you don't see the rest of the year. And since I'm leaving today, I'll just be blunt. (laughs) It's wonderful to see you. Don't misunderstand me. I'm glad you're here, and you should be here. But if you don't love Jesus enough to come every week, it means that you probably have never tasted grace. Once you've tasted grace, there's no going back. It's the most beautiful thing in all of the world. And you can't save yourself. That's the meaning of verse 13. You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must cast yourself wholly and completely on the Lord and ask Him to save you, to forgive you, to change you, to make you a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, 
If you receive him, verse 12, if you believe in his name, he gives you the right to become children of God. That's a, that's a wonderful, marvelous, astonishing privilege to be able to say, I belong to the family of God, and Jesus is my elder brother. That's my belief this morning. That's my treasure this morning. It was the treasure of these little children down here this morning whose parents have taught them that when you have Jesus, you have everything. This Christmas, there's a box underneath your tree. It's wrapped in fancy paper and a bow. And when you open it, there will be some words, and they will go like this. When you have Jesus, you have everything. Everything to take you home all the way to glory. And I trust this Christmas season that you will not allow another season to go by, and you're saying, I will do this later, because you don't know if there is a later. You need to do it today. You need to do it now. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus, and He will never turn you away. He will receive you if you receive Him. May God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so work in you today. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this gospel, and thank You for these truths. And we pray, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that You would bring it home to the hearts and lives of all who hear it today. For Jesus' sake, amen.